So, do you feel like inventing an extinction machine? Or do you want to invent the next technology that's going to tear society apart? I think you can. There don't seem to be many rules here about what people can do. You know, human beings are amazing with technology. Our innovation has been nearly magical. But now, our technology is getting so powerful that we might be engineering our own destruction. Why would we want to do that? That's what we'll look at today, and we'll see if we can get a little more safety happening. Let's dig in. This is the joy of saving the human race, where we try to get the world to cooperate. It's so the human race can avoid some urgent global problems that could mean the end of civilization and cause lots of suffering around the world. But also, we just want to have a good world that we enjoy and we can feel proud of. We are not just citizens of our own countries. We are citizens of the human race. Let's learn to manage ourselves responsibly. Let's help the human race act like it wants to last for a while. I think humans are awesome, and the human race is worth saving. There is no time to waste, so let's do this. Hi friends, welcome to the joy of saving the human race. I'm Shelby Martis. So today we're going to talk technology and the profound impact that technology is having on our society and on our future. Um, some really important issues. Today we're going to talk about information technology, computing, uh, things like artificial intelligence, social media, deep fakes. The last episode I did was also about technology, but that was more about things impacting the physical world, um, like chemicals, biotechnology, um, nuclear waste, things like that, that uh, impact pub, you know, human health and the natural environment. The stuff we're going to talk about today, the impacts are more social. They could have some impact on the physical world, at least indirectly, but the things we're going to talk about today impact our culture, our economy, our politics, basically the way our society functions and the way our internet, our technologies interact with that. I think with this talk today, I'm making a unique contribution to the public conversation about this stuff. For quite a while now, I've consumed a ton of material, done a ton of research about artificial intelligence and technology generally, and there seem to be really important things that are not getting the attention they deserve. Um, I've listened to countless um, you know, podcasts, interviews, presentations, read articles by the people on the cutting edge making this technology, and a bunch of other observers. And I'm not seeing the kind of concern about safety that I'd like to see, and I'm not seeing the, um, the depth of thought about its impact on society that I'd like to see. So I'm going to try to fill in the gaps here today and offer you some thoughts and information that I hope will help. Part of what I'm doing here is not focusing only on that technology itself, like say artificial intelligence, but also taking a bigger picture look, 
looking at the history of human technology and our current day issues and noticing those ways in which humanity has managed the, its technology or failed to manage its technology in a good way, allowing dangerous things to happen and allowing some risks to our welfare that I think are intolerable. So as we look at um, humanity's tendencies around its technology, we can learn more about what we're likely to do with this upcoming technology and the mistakes we might make and the risks we need to look out for so that we can manage ourselves in a good way. Right now is an incredibly important historic moment. Um, our economy and society are going through insane amount of transformation and it's really on the level of the agricultural revolution that humanity had um, you know a couple centuries ago where people learned how to grow food um, which then supported a booming human population and then we saw the industrial revolution uh, a couple centuries ago which then was amplified by fossil fuels and that created the modern society we see around us with various products, transportation, electricity, fuels, communication, all this modern stuff that has led to unprecedented prosperity and this modern way of life is the Industrial Revolution. Right now, we're starting into two other types of transformations. One is the biotechnology revolution, where people are figuring out how to manipulate the building blocks of life in order to improve health and get things done. And even, you know, with fuels, agriculture, other kinds of technology and products based on biology and life. The other is the digital revolution or the digital age, which is computers and now the internet um, and the many things that flow from that and artificial intelligence, which we're now on the cusp of. I'm going to spend, I think, the greatest amount of time today talking about artificial intelligence, but we're going to talk about other pieces related to that. As we deal with information technology, I think this is a little more challenging to talk about and to consider than some other things which have a more physical impact on the environment or on our health. Like, you know, things around chemicals or biotech, yeah, it can be complex, of course, but intellectually it's a little similar because we can say oh that chemical that's toxic like stop making that or that piece of biotech equipment like oh that's dangerous if it gets in the wrong hands let's control that better you know the the physical tangible stuff um, I think is easier to get our heads around but these things in the digital revolution are a little more elusive because it's based on computer code it's a bunch of ones and zeros that we can't see or touch. 
and computer code, most people don't know how it works, including our government officials that are in charge of regulating this stuff. And we in the general public reacting to these changes happening around us. So with all this, we have to work harder to think through the risks and what we want to do about it. As we consider how this might play out going forward, I'm seeing two possible futures. So considering future generations looking back at us at this important historical moment, one possibility is they see us um, basically waking up and taking control of our situations. The internet happened and computers happened which gave us unprecedented tools and capability to understand ourselves. We had um, just an unlimited amount of information that made us all smarter and wiser. And we had computing tools that allowed us to analyze situations and innovate in good ways, like to fix the climate, to improve the environment, to manage our pandemic risk better, to make a better economy that works well for everyone, um, that this knowledge and tools allowed us to really wake up and do amazing things. And also that our communications tools allowed us to be more cohesive as a society, to be more connected with each other, to understand each other better, to cooperate better, that it helped us manage ourselves better and be more mature and disciplined about how we handle our um, shared affairs. So that's one possible future, and that's the one I very much long for and that I'm trying to see happen. But I see the possibility for another future that seems just as likely, which is that we took this new information age all these amazing new tools that we've invented and we just gave it all to the big companies to run for us and those big companies were too busy making money in order to really think about and manage the societal impact of all these powerful new tools um, the new information technology kept us addicted to anger and hate and lies and we kept arguing instead of solving problems we also, with this new technology, got addicted to entertaining distractions instead of solving our existential threats. Uh, technology was used by bad people to do some bad things that destabilized our society. And technology added tons of complexity to an already complex world. And then we invented more complexity to manage that complexity. And it all got so damn complicated that we just gave up. We couldn't figure it out. And we just watched civilization fall apart because it was too complicated and we didn't know what to do. These two futures seem to me equally possible. And here we are right now at a crossroads at this very important moment, deciding which of these two paths we're going to go on. And nobody knows the future. I certainly don't. But I think which path we go on depends on our actions right now. And if we can have thoughtful conversation and really think this stuff through now so that we can manage our future in a better way. 
What makes this an incredibly important historic moment is that humanity has not yet seen anything like what's about to happen. So if we consider the rate of change in computing, um, it's just pretty extraordinary. So I'm looking at a graph right now that shows computing power that adds up the 500 strongest computers in the world over you know many decades. So the graph starting in the 1960s, which was generally the the beginning of computers, the graph hugs the bottom and you barely even see it for decades until 2010 it starts to increase and then 2015 there's a dramatic increase and at this point right now the graph is going vertical it's just going straight up we've got true exponential growth in the power of our computers and um, how that plays out for us is extraordinarily fast change. Um, things are moving really quickly and it's about to move even quicker. So, and, and I'll argue today that as a society we are not organized around safety. So we're about to have extraordinarily fast change that we seem to just not be ready for. So let's dig in and look at this a little deeper and let me illustrate to you um, what I'm talking about here. I'm first going to talk a little bit about deep fakes. Um, this story I'm about to share is actually what inspired me to do this episode today and generally to include technology issues within this show, The Joy of Saving the Human Race. And it was the moment at which I realized how vulnerable we are to um, technological progress or harms. This is not like the huge catastrophic threat like other things I deal with in the show, but this issue just makes it extremely hard to know what's true and what to believe. And it makes running a government in society super difficult. So deep fakes are, this is basically software that can alter audio and video um, in order to um, basically make something up that seems true. So for instance, if I had a few minutes of video of you just talking and saying whatever, I could take that video and run it through this computer software and then I could tell it to make you say, I hate jelly beans. Even if you've never said, I hate jelly beans before. Um, or, you know, it could be a longer presentation or whatever. Um, but it would be in your voice, it would look like you, and it would seem pretty damn realistic. And somebody watching it, who's not watching carefully enough, could really believe that you said that. Um, so this can be done with video, this can be done also with audio, and the tools are getting much easier. Um, I first came across this in um, the podcast Radio Lab, which um, 
basically talked about all this. I've got a, a link in the show notes to it, and I really encourage you to look at it. Um, you'll find a link to some videos of researchers as they're inventing this stuff. And as I watch these videos, I saw them use examples of President Obama and Donald Trump as their sort of example of this technology that they just invented. So not only did they um, make this technology that could be used for political misinformation, but they almost just showed the world like, hey guys, here's how you can use it to damage a political system. They almost like clued us into the worst possibilities or worst ways that it could be used. So um, deep fakes are getting really good. So, you know, you might look at that video in the, in the link and see that um, if you look really close, you might be able to see that it's, um, you know, computer generated. But this stuff is getting much, much better. And in the next few years, as computing power increases, it's going to get really realistic. And people are not going to be able to tell what's true and what's not. And um, we already have difficulty in our society right now determining what's true online. So misinformation is already running wild, and people are falling prey to various conspiracy theories that are just totally untrue, but people have trouble sifting out, like, what's true and what's not. People forward, you know, bogus, made-up things to each other on the Internet. And notice that Russia has used misinformation to influence elections in the United States and elsewhere. Um, and so now deepfake technology is a powerful new tool for deceiving the public. It's dangerous. So there might be some legitimate use for this software, like maybe to create video art or movie making. But it just gets me thinking, is movie making more important than having a functioning political system and for knowing what's true? Like, who decides? Like, why does somebody get to make software just that is for fun or creative entertainment, but not consider the damage to political systems? Um, what if its inventors had not invented it? Like, just because something can be done doesn't mean it should be done and put out into the world. And so that at that moment of invention, what's happening there? Like, who gets to decide what gets put into the world and whether that's harmful or not? Um, there's a lot of people who resist government regulation, who resist rules, because they say that freedom is important for innovation. Like, they want a hands-off approach that people can innovate and create. But is their freedom to create what they want more important than my freedom or your freedom to have a functioning political system? Like, who is free and who decides like, who's got the right to have a decent society, you know? So, like, 
how do we balance those people's, um, I guess, right to make a technology versus my rights as a citizen? The bigger point here I'm making is not exactly about this piece of technology itself. I'd like us to use this as a comparison for technology overall. Um, as I looked at that video of the people who were inventing it, I saw very smart people. Like, they're incredibly intelligent with technology, but they seem to have no clue about the social ramifications of what they were doing. So they're quite good at computer science, but clueless about political science, or psychology, or sociology, or history, and apparently have not understood the way misinformation has been used across history to do bad things. So technology inventors may not be well-rounded people and they might not be in the best position to understand the consequences of what they're creating. So we should consider like what if those inventors were surrounded by other types of people who had these kind of insights that they might lack? And then what if we as citizens could influence the situation? Like, why can't we have a say in how this plays out? Because we're all incredibly um, affected by it. So I just want to stop and notice that technology inventors may not be equipped to understand the impact of what they're doing. And it just seems like generally the way society is built right now, that people aren't allowed to invent whatever the heck they want, and there's no rules. So on top of this very shaky foundation, we're now inventing the most powerful technology humanity has ever seen. I'm worried. So next, let's talk about the internet and social media. Um, so just to refresh your memory, the internet came along basically in the late 90s was when it sort of rolled out and became a mainstream thing. It was around for a couple decades before that that was used by like computer geeks and some academics, but it was a very small thing. So it was only late 90s where it started to roll out and everybody started using it. So it's just a little over 20 years. We've seen an insane amount of transformation of our society um, with this technology. So it's completely changed the way that we work and the way businesses and organizations operate. It's changed the way we communicate with each other. It's changed the way we consume entertainment, the way we learn. Like we have access, even with the phone in our pocket, to like all of human knowledge at our fingertips. It changes, um, you know, the way we communicate, the way we work, the way we play, the way we manage our finances, the way we navigate around in the world. Like all these things are different because of this technology in just 20 years. Um, things are moving really quickly. Now, we've also had some growing pains in that time, and even more recently. 
I'm not going to claim that we should not have the internet because it has brought a lot of amazing, wonderful things. But I'm noticing, though, that the pace of change right now is faster than we seem to be able to handle. This is powerful stuff, and we have not yet adapted to it. So, like, when this all rolled out a couple decades ago, it, we were told about the amazing, tremendous things that it would give us. So we were told that it would give us more freedom and democracy and knowledge and make us all smarter. Everything will be better. We were told it would be this sort of democratizing, equalizing force because it allowed everybody to get in on this. In some ways, it's done that. But also, it's created a lot of imbalance, where we now have enormous corporations running this show that are nearly, monopoli uh, nearly monopolies, making enormous, like, so many billions of dollars. And their CEOs are the richest people ever in history. Um, those companies have an extraordinary amount of influence upon our lives and how we live it in what we do and how we communicate with each other. They didn't tell us that was going to happen. Also, we've got people now who are overstimulated, distracted, addicted to their technology, checking their email every five minutes, you know, addicted to their computers, their phones, their pornography, their video games, their binge-watching TV addicted to their online shopping. Um, it's changed the way people function in the world and changed people's psychology in a way that we didn't anticipate. And then on top of that, the last few years, social media has come along and it was meant to bring us together and connect us and make us this big happy family. But it also, though, has left people feeling anxious self-conscious, isolated, depressed. And now we're also in this moment where it's hard to know what's true and who to trust because we're all being bombarded with this blizzard of information. It used to be back in the day that we would have to seek out information. You'd have to go to a library. You'd have to read a book. You'd have to go like search for it. And now we've just got this onslaught of information coming at us from all directions. It's pretty overwhelming. And so in this sort of overstimulating um, environment, people don't know like who to trust. And so it leaves people open to conspiracies. We've got like QAnon happening and other conspiracies. Um, there's people who just distrust all authority and all information, even basic science, which I think stems from people's inability to keep up with the blizzard of information and make sense of it. You've also got Russia, which influences elections in the United States and other countries. Propaganda and misinformation has happened for ages. But technology now makes it all far more powerful. And it's really warping our politics and our society. And this is happening in the United States even, which, compared to much of the world, has a very solid education system, 
a long history of free speech and free press, you would think that the United States would, with these traditions, be able to handle this stuff better, but we're not. Um, but then some other countries are far less equipped to adapt. So, for example, in the country of Myanmar in 2017, there was violent ethnic cleansing that took place. The Rohingya are an ethnic minority um, living there. Um, and basically, the government and the military just cleared them out. They went through and they burned villages. Many thousands of people were killed. Um, many thousands of women and girls were raped. Homes and villages were burned. 700,000 people were forced to flee into neighboring Bangladesh. Now they're living in primitive refugee camps, living in tents for years. Hundreds of thousands of people. So some people in the military, when this happened, they used Facebook to spread lies and hate about the Rohingya. So they whipped up enormous hatred of the Rohingya among the popula general population in Myanmar. So when the military then went and did this ethnic cleansing, instead of being shocked and appalled, the people of Myanmar kind of accepted it because they hated the Rohingya at this point, because they were fed lies and hate. So Myanmar had only gotten Facebook just a couple years before that. The internet came later to Myanmar than it did in some other places. So they didn't have um, the internet literacy. They didn't have the skills and background in fact-checking and determining what's true and what's false. So, as this all was happening, Facebook was warned many times that their platform was being used to, to whip up hate and that it was destabilizing the country. They did not take action. They didn't devote staff to the problem. Since that, they have deleted some accounts, they've added some staff to monitor the situation. But it was way too little, way too late, and that horrible atrocity happened in large part enabled by these new technologies that Facebook offered. So Mark Zuckerberg, the head of Facebook, um, has this quote that he's often shared with his employees. He says, move fast and break things. Unless you're breaking stuff, you're not moving fast enough. So Myanmar got broken. Um, among technology, he's not alone in seeing the world that way. It's that attitude of just gallop forward as quickly as possible and just mop up the consequences later. It just makes me wonder, like, what do we plan to break next? Let's see. So I haven't named it yet, but we've already been talking about artificial intelligence. Uh, people know it as AI for short. So artificial intelligence is what's running these social media platforms. These computers track massive amounts of data. 
So just for context, know that there's 2.8 billion people who use Facebook every month. And there's 1.8 billion of them use it every day. That's an extraordinarily large number of people on that platform. Um, humans unaided, there's no way they would be able to track the data on that many people. But these computers really track a lot. It tracks every click of your mouse while you're on the platform. Even if you pause for a bit to look at something as you're scrolling, it notices your pause. It sees what you're looking at and for how long. And so it tracks that data for each individual person on the platform and then gives each person their own individualized feed of information. So basically what it's doing is those computers are analyzing all of your behavior as you are on the platform to get a profile of what you seem to like and be interested in. And then it compares that with the entire like billions and billions of posts by other people on that platform and gives you exactly what it thinks you're going to like. Now, it's not doing that just to be nice and help you be happy on there. It's doing that to engage you as long as possible so that you'll see as many ads as possible and then they'll make as much money as possible. So through all of this, the artificial intelligence running this notices patterns that the humans working there would not be able to uncover. And one of the things that the AIs have basically realized is that people like drama, they like hate, they like anger, they like stuff that fires them up. And so that's what people often click on if you put it in front of them. Um, people also tend to like things that they agree with. And so it'll also feed people stuff that conforms with their existing views. So, you know, people who seem to be liberal, they'll feed them liberal stuff. If they seem to be conservative, they feed them liberal, the conservative stuff. Um, they'll feed them stuff that hates on the other side. Um, it's widely documented that these algorithms on, you know, Facebook and other social media platforms are leading to more political polarization. Now, there's other factors in society playing into that polarization, but these AI-driven um, platforms are increasing it dramatically and increasing the conspiracy theories and the misinformation and the anger and the hate. And Facebook has known about these effects. They can look at their systems and look at this data and see this data showing them people's changing behavior patterns, changing consumption patterns based on their interaction with these AIs. Um, I encourage you to look at an article I've got in the show notes in the MIT Technology Review titled, How Facebook Got Addicted to Spreading Misinformation. It interviews several people at the company 
who say that they've known since at least 2018 that their platform was increasing political polarization and this issue of anger, anger and hate and people also intensifying their um, sort of political extremism and making people's views more extreme than they used to be by giving them this feed. So the result of this is now we've got, you know, QAnon and other conspiracies. We've got people separated from reality. We've got rioters storming the United States Capitol recently. Like, the United States almost had a meltdown. It has been really serious stuff that has been so damaging to our political system. And it's not fixed yet. It's all still there. It's still running. So Facebook, you know, I, I pick on now just because they're the biggest, but there are others. So I want to just note that it's not enough to just have a campaign to just stop Facebook and get them to stop what they're doing. Like, obviously, yeah, get them to stop what they're doing. That would be good. But that alone is not the solution. We need to change the ecosystem within, this, within which this stuff works so that it doesn't keep happening. Because you could just stop Facebook, but some other company will get big and, and take its place. And there's lots of other platforms, and it's always changing. So I just want to notice that these social media companies lately have been putting on a show of um, doing something about this. Like, this has gotten a lot of public attention and even some attention um, by politicians and regulators who are concerned about these patterns. So the companies are kicking certain people off their platforms. They're taking down certain posts. Um, they're moderating their content. They're putting some more staff into content moderation. But none of this is the real solution. And I don't want to, um, I don't want to say this. I don't like to be overly suspicious of people's motives that I haven't talked to. But it just looks to me as an outsider observing this that they're doing this content moderation, you know, as a deflection. Because the actual core problem is these algorithms in this artificial intelligence that's determining what gets fed to people and giving them more polarizing extreme stuff. So it's the algorithms that are the problem. And there's no amount of content moderation you can do that's going to fix that problem. Because, you know, Facebook alone has over 2 billion people on the platform. Like, if you moderate that with humans, you would need a billion people, like, you know, monitoring that content. It's just simply impossible. So the only way to get a handle on that problem is to control the algorithms. And I doubt those companies are going to do it on their own because they're making shit tons of money right now. These are the richest companies in the world making so many billions of dollars. And so, you know, in those interviews... I've heard about with Facebook employees who talk about what's happening in there, they say they've noticed the pattern, but they're making too much money. So they refuse to turn it off because they don't want to hurt their profits. 
So these companies have broad immunity from legal liability. In the United States, where many of them are based, they're protected by Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act of 1996. This was legislation that kind of set up some of the parameters of the internet as it rolled out. So what it says is that those platforms are not legally liable for what its users post on the platform. And so basically these companies, they say, well, we're not like content publishers. We didn't write the stuff. It's not our stuff. We're just simply a platform for people to share things. And they say, like, we're neutral, like we're out of it. We don't have anything to do with this. But their algorithms are pointing people to the most dangerous material and changing their behavior. So really... Congress needs to take action soon in dealing with this stuff and start regulating it. But I just want to note, though, what a bad situation this is, that we don't have international regulations on this very international Internet that we have. So the entire world is waiting desperately for the United States to take action and regulate this stuff when this is a worldwide phenomenon that has, you know, broken Myanmar and a bunch of other countries have had their own issues with this. So really there should be binding international regulation of this industry. That's the better way to go about it. So I just want to stop and notice a couple lessons to take from this, is that technology is advancing quicker than we're able to keep up with. Also, I want to notice that we can't just trust companies to do the right thing and manage themselves, because they're obviously not. If we were so far managing this situation with social media, and regulating it properly, I might feel more confident about the future, but it's clear that we're not. And so now we're about to go into um, a period of even faster change and even quicker innovation, and we haven't yet dealt with the technology that we already have. I'd rather deal with what we already have before we bring out a bunch of new crazy things, but that's where we're headed. I'm just going to remind you again of the graph of computing power in the world, the top 500 supercomputers, that the speed is growing exponentially, a vertical graph. Um, it's one of the fastest changing things in our world right now. So now I want to talk more uh, specifically about artificial intelligence and just what it is, how it works, what we can expect from it. Notice that it's called artificial intelligence. Um, for thousands, many thousands of years, humans have been the most powerful species on Earth. Um, our opposable thumb helped, but really it was about being the most intelligent creature on earth. That's why we dominate it. It's not because we're the biggest or the strongest or the fastest. It's because we're the smartest. 
and intelligence um, is just crucial to our place in the world. Um, but pretty soon we may no longer be in charge because we might not be the smartest. A lot of people in technology believe that at some point computers will become smarter than humans. Uh, we don't know when, but estimates range from a couple decades from now to a couple centuries from now. Nobody quite knows. But, you know, with that graph of exponential vertical growth in computing power, my guess is that that's going to come along quicker than we thought because things are increasing so quickly. So everybody seems so enamored with technology these days. Everybody's excited about it. And it seems like some people in technology are just ready to jump out of their plane without a parachute because they're all excited. Um, some people, though, have serious concerns. Uh, ones you may have heard of include Elon Musk, Bill Gates, the physicist Stephen Hawking. Um, I want to share a quote with you that Stephen Hawking and a couple others shared in an article shortly before Hawking's death. They said that success in creating AI would be the biggest event in human history. Unfortunately, it might also be the last unless we learn how to avoid the risks. One can imagine such technology outsmarting financial markets, out-inventing human researchers, out-manipulating human leaders, and developing weapons we cannot even understand. Whereas the short-term impact of AI depends on who controls it, the long-term impact depends on whether it can be controlled at all. So, um, yeah, that sounds dramatic, and that sounds worth um, thinking about and planning for. It's a big deal. So, you know, in the coming years, computers will have the computation power beyond um, human brains. So far, computers have enabled great innovation, but so far they've just been tools. Like, we tell them what they do, and they do it. Um, computers have depended on humans to program them carefully and guide their work. But now, with artificial intelligence, computers are less dependent on humans for programming because they teach themselves. So this happens in a couple different ways. In some cases, you give an AI tons of data, just tons of examples of something, and they'll recognize patterns and get smarter from that. Another type is where you give it a problem to solve or some playground to mess around in, and they'll just try something over and over and over, and they'll improve from their efforts and figure out how to do it. So there's a lot of current applications right now. Um, it's being used in facial recognition software for self-driving cars, um, in medical scans in order to like spot tumors or abnormalities. Um, and often this scanning software spots things better than humans. 
Um, AI is being used for translating languages in internet search engines. You know, like when you Google something, they're using artificial intelligence and much more, a lot of different things. It's kind of tricky right now talking about artificial intelligence as a potentially dangerous thing because like right now it's being used for so many things and even in a bunch of ads you know you'll see whatever product is powered by AI and you know it's the cool like cutting-edge tech thing that people are using um, but in this field, there are many thousands of people working to advance and innovate and speed this along. And there's billions of dollars being spent on research. So with all this effort um, in the field, some AI will break out and become very, very powerful. So let me just give you some examples of what's happening lately and then we'll talk about some future possibilities of how this might play out. So in 2017 the Google company DeepMind created this AI called AlphaZero. This program is better at chess than all of the world's best human players. Now World champion chess players are pretty smart people. They're highly intelligent. They've been playing chess for years, like sometimes their whole life they've been playing chess. And their knowledge is built upon hundreds of years of accumulated wisdom and strategy on how to play chess. AlphaZero learned how to play chess in just nine hours and do it better than all the human chess players. It taught itself. There had been some previous chess playing software where they programmed into it um, chess strategy. But this one, they didn't tell it any strategy at all. They just gave it the rules and the machine played millions of games of chess against itself and discovered strategy. People who have played chess against this program say that AlphaZero plays chess like an alien. It just does things that humans don't think to do. And then the thing also plays Shogi and Go. These are other games. Um, I haven't played Go, but I hear that it's far more complicated than chess. So if this program learned to play chess better than any existing human in just nine hours, how long would it take to learn your job? Maybe 10 hours? Like we might have massive job displacement from computers like this because they can learn so quickly. So next, the company refined it and made another version called MuZero. And it outperformed the previous AlphaZero doing chess even better, but this time it taught itself the rules. They didn't even teach it the rules of chess, and it just discovered the rules and then played it even better. That same exact software also plays 57 Atari video games. They use this package of older Atari games to train computers on, 
you know, stuff like Pac-Man and Space Invaders. And it plays these Atari games, almost all of them, better than humans and better than any other software that had been created. So it's the same exact AI software that originally played chess, but now will also play Go in all these Atari games. So it's, it's flexible. Another type in an entirely different realm um, was made by the company OpenAI. This company was founded by Elon Musk, although he's backed away from it now. Um, the company has partnered with Microsoft. It made this AI that's called GPT-3. I'm sorry, I forget what GPT stands for. It's an acronym. But basically, the purpose of this kind of AI is to pr improve the language interface between humans and computers. Um, because it's hard for computers to understand language. Language is complicated. What they did with this AI is they trained it with a copy of billions of web pages and books. So just for comparison, um, the entire Wikipedia in English was less than 1% of the learning data fed to this AI to learn on. So then what it came out with is it can write short stories. This program can write poetry in the style of particular human poets. So you can tell it to make it exactly to sound like Shakespeare or whoever. Um, it will write news stories or press releases. It will write articles about itself. It can correct grammar. It will answer multiple choice questions. It can take your rude comments and turn them into polite ones. It can act like a search engine where it will give you an answer to your question and then link you to information. It can write computer code. And they did not design it for that. They didn't know it was going to write computer code. It doesn't write really advanced code, but some simple basic code it writes because it had access to a bunch of books on computer programming. And so it just looked at those books and now it knows how to write computer code. So this program, it's not all perfect. It does make some glitches and some, it'll write some language where you can tell something's like a little bit off. Um, it's not always exactly as a human would write it. But it's pretty amazing, and everybody's pretty astonished by what this thing could do. Some people, including the people at AI, have expressed concern about this being misused because it could be used to impersonate other people, or it could be used to spread widespread information. So, you know, right now, to put misinformation out onto the internet, I would need to write it myself. But using a program like this, it could just automate and amplify that. So I could have it write a thousand different articles on a topic and put them all over the place on the internet, which could be a critical mass enough to really misinform people about what's going on. So these couple examples show a couple trends within artificial intelligence. Um, some types of AIs are very focused. 
they're good at one type of task and they do it really well, way better than a human would. There are others that are more general or flexible or good at doing many things. And the extension of this that people are shooting toward is artificial general intelligence. People will sometimes call this AGI. Um, each of these realms has their own concerns and things we need to be careful of. When we talk about intelligence, I think it's important to note that it's not just one thing. It's not like a single factor that you can measure. So just consider other intelligent creatures in the world today other than us. So relatively smart animals include the octopus, the chimpanzee, the dolphin, pigs. They're all different from each other. So a chimpanzee doesn't really understand how to be an octopus. I certainly wouldn't understand how to be an octopus. It's way better at being an octopus than I am. Um, these are different types of smarts, and they're all each different than human intelligence. So, you know, even if artificial intelligence is not good at everything humans are, it'll be far better in some things. So, you know, artificial intelligence, as it gets smart, it might not be exactly like humans are. And there's a many, there are many different ways that intelligence can manifest and, and show itself. But so I just offer that a little bit. I'm, I'm going to oversimplify slightly, though, to, to make this point that just consider the moment when computers reach human intelligence. Um, at that point, they're going to be on this exponential growth of computing power, power that's already happening and quickening. So that vertical graph, um, at the point at which it reaches humans, it's not far after that that it's way beyond humans because it's increasing dramatically. Now, computing power isn't everything. Like, there has to be software, and there are some innovations in um, creating AIs to manage things and be smart and learn and all that. So there's still some technological innovation that has to happen um, in basically discovering how to do AI um, that's better. But computation is a huge part of this, and computation is growing um, rapidly. So AlphaZero and GPT-3, they taught themselves things that people didn't quite expect, and they just did it with tons of computation. They just crunched data, crunched data, crunched data so big, so fast, that they come up with things. Also, at that moment at which computers are becoming as smart as humans, they may be rewriting and improving their own computer code. Um, and computer scientists are working on this, like getting um, AI that will keep rewriting itself 
because it doesn't only have an awareness of the outside world that it's manipulating, it can also have an awareness of its own operating and change the way it operates to improve. So again, at that point at, that point at which it reaches human level intelligence, it will be improving itself. And it may also be inventing better hardware for itself to run on because it may develop an, an awareness that, well, if you change that chip or change that wiring, it can run faster or whatever. That stuff might be happening. So, yeah, right after human level intelligence, superhuman level intelligence might happen quickly. And the speed of that um, might surprise us. So we should get ready for that. Also, I just want to notice too that you know people in these conversations they all, they always they often talk about what's it going to be like when there's computers that are equally smart as humans. But like that doesn't seem to be the point. Like these people inventing it, they're going for the superhuman. They're going for the capabilities that humans are not able to do. Because otherwise, it would be a silly waste of billions of dollars to come up with computers that simply replace a person. It would be far cheaper to just hire a person. So really, like what people are after is that superhuman um, intelligence capability. And with all the resources and people working on it, I have a feeling they're going to pull it off. So as this all advances forward, there are millions of ways this can all play out, and nobody can accurately predict the future. I'm just going to here offer some potential scenarios on what the future might look like. Um, you know, this gets in interesting territory because we have to use our imagination to consider what the future might look like. And with some of what I'm going to share, this is me imagining possibilities. But it's not just me off in imagination land. Like, I'm drawing on the expertise of lots of people in the field. And that's why in the show notes for this show, I'm linking you to many articles and resources by people in the field who are, like, talking about what's possible. So... I just offer that so you don't think I'm off in imagination land um, making up panicky stuff. As we think about all these, again, we don't know how it's going to play out, but there are enough bad possibilities and quite credible bad possibilities that we really should be focusing on safety. So in the shorter term, my concern is about AI that is managed by humans and used for some purposes that are harmful because these are very powerful tools. So just consider hacking or stealing or identity theft. These are activities that already take place online, um, but these are like driven by people figuring out how to do this stuff. But just imagine when those people get their hands on even more powerful AI technology to do these activities. So you could see on a much larger scale people taking your money out of your bank account 
or taking all the bank's money, um, or even phoning the bank on the telephone as you. Because remember the deep fake software? Like that could be run by an AI that's in real time sounding like you or looking like you. You know, you could have a future time where you're on a Zoom meeting or a Skype call and you have to ask people like, wait, are you a real person? Because an AI might be able to do that in real time, mimic like people's, um, you know, voice and image. You could imagine gaming the stock market or crashing it, you know, or other financial systems. So, you know, think back when we talked about AlphaZero that can learn how to play chess in Go in Atari games, where you just set it loose on this game and it figures out how to play it better than anybody else. A stock market is really just like a big game. It's got rules of the game, and there's a lot of transactions and, and trades. And, and um, I have a feeling AI could figure out how to do that. So it could really distort the stock market because it would no longer be this, um, what do you call it? People see it so far, the stock market, as a, an assessment of the economy and the future and risks and the strengths or weaknesses of various companies. But now it could just, you know, basically the money goes to the people with the best AI system who can game that stock market the best. You could also see cyber war. Um, you know, cyber warfare is already a growing concern because um, especially larger countries have this capability to use electronic means to mess with each other's um, infrastructure systems, power grids, um, you know, shut down hospitals, shut down governments, um, shut down banking systems, hack into each other's systems. Cyber, war is, cyber warfare is already an issue, but Imagine what happens when it's powered by insanely strong artificial intelligence that can size up a cyber situation in another country and just figure out a way in to manipulate it. Uh, you could see some crazy stuff. We also could see self-guided weapons. Um, this could be the new arms race between countries. There's a strong incentive for countries to use this in the military because um, artificial intelligence may be able to react more quickly than a human can and with fewer mistakes. And um, it just offers better reaction time. AI also might be able to handle the complexity of the battlefield because in a battle situation, you've got so many actors you know, planes flying around and tanks driving around and all the troops and the communication between them and who's doing what where and the supplies and all this stuff. It, it, you know, warfare is very complicated. So people might use artificial intelligence to make those kind of decisions and to plan strategy. Um, but what can happen, though, then, is that we have technology deciding, like, who lives and who dies, um, who gets bombed and who doesn't. 
And if it's not completely under our control, it could sort of spin out of control because we've made insanely more complexity by adding these AIs to the already complex situation. Another possibility, too, is that um, AI powers weapons like, you know, robots that are able to kill, um, that are armed, or drones that are able to, that are armed, that can shoot or drop bombs or whatever. Um, these various machines, as they're made and used by militaries, they can also get into the hands of other people. So they could fall into terrorist hands and be used by bad guys that we don't want using that stuff. So, yeah, weapons, that's a big thing. Um, you could see AI used by dictators or autocratic governments controlling their population with heavy surveillance and um, heavy infiltration into their privacy in order to keep their political control. We also, with artificial intelligence, could see massive addiction. So with our technology already, like I mentioned, we've got people who are addicted to checking their email, they're addicted to binge watching TV, they're addicted to pornography, they're addicted to video games, they're addicted to online shopping. Just imagine a future where artificial intelligence knows you better than you know you. So in the way that the Facebook and social media algorithm knows what you're likely to click on and will even make it more extreme. Imagine things like when AI is powering a virtual reality entertainment space that is tailored exactly to you and is immersive and not only just like a video game where you see stuff, but it's got sounds and feeling and, you know, all five senses and it's immersive. Like, this stuff could be so addictive because it could be far more interesting than real life. So um, addiction has always been an issue for humans. I mean, you've had alcohol forever and, you know, tobacco and various drugs and whatever. There's always some people who are more prone to addiction, but I think with these um, technological tools that are about to come along, we're going to uncover vast new frontiers of addiction that we've never seen before. And um, it's possible that that could be on a scale that is a little destabilizing for society when so many people just sort of check out into like this unreal um, entertainment space. So as we consider the ways in which um, artificial intelligence might be misused or misused in harmful ways, um, it's important for us to notice like who does what and what their incentives are in this space. You know, part of what inspired me to do this episode today is listening to an insane number of interviews and presentations by people in the artificial intelligence field who talk about AI safety purely as a technical issue to be solved. Like, 
as we invent it, if we just engineer it well enough and tight enough that it'll handle the safety for us. But in these so many conversations, people are not realizing the social forces and the economic forces underlying all this that will get in the way of safety. So for instance, just consider companies that are involved in making or using this technology. Companies want to make money. And we've just seen throughout history that money can corrupt people's good judgments. So corporations and the economy in general are not so far designed for long-term thinking. Like already, they're willing to destroy our climate and environment to make profit. So if they're willing to make these poor choices for our long-term future in order to make money, it's hard to believe that everybody's going to just naturally want to do the good, safe thing, especially if there's a lot of money to be made. And another thing with companies, too, is that um, these might end up as tools that are just sold to the public. Um, you know, it's just like powerful software that you can buy and use for things. So even aside from that company's intentions, they might just widely distribute it so that anybody can just buy this and then do really creative, weird, damaging things with it. So, and then that company says, well, hey, it's not our fault. We just made it. It's not my fault that, you know, so-and-so did it to do a horrible thing and sort of wipe their hands of responsibility. Another, other players in this mix include governments um, who have their own psychological issues and their own um, parameters. So, you know, governments might be in this arms race to be the quickest to come up with this technology, especially for military purposes and for weapons. So they might realize the dangers, but they're afraid of the other guy getting it first, and they think they need to have it either, you know, to outcompete the other guy or to act as a deterrent against the other guy. So, you know, consider nuclear weapons in our past, where even all the people inventing those nuclear weapons were really afraid of the power of the technology they're making. There were some who even thought that they were going to blow up the whole atmosphere of the planet because they didn't really know how powerful this was going to be until they tested it and blew it up. But they did it because they were afraid of the other guy. They were afraid of Hitler. They were afraid of Japan. And so they just did it anyway. So, you know, I don't, with this thing with AI, I don't know if it'll be as extreme as nuclear weapons, but the same um, arms race dynamic exists where people might overlook safety to rush because they're worried about the other guy. And then with governments, they might develop this stuff believing that they can um, keep control of it, um, that they see themselves as a good, responsible steward of this technology. But times change. 
So you could see a country develop it and then someday down the road they've got a president that's mentally ill and has emotional problems. And you know, with recent history we can see that seems pretty plausible. Plausible. Um, and also governments may not be able to control it. Or even companies that invent it may not be able to control it. Like it might leak out. Somebody might steal it. They might hack into it. They might get bribed to make a copy of it and give it to somebody else. So when it's created, you can't really control who's going to get their hands on this stuff and how they're going to use it. So these are the dynamics around safety that have to get talked about. And so making artificial intelligence safe, it's not just an engineering issue. It's like a social issue. We have to get our politics and economics aligned around this stuff, or else we're going to get very dangerous outcomes. So all those concerns and possibilities I just shared are more like about the shorter term. But longer term, there's the possibility as these computers get smarter than humans, they might get out of our control. They might not do what we want, and they might be smarter than us, which causes a lot of difficult um, situations. This stuff is like weird to talk about. It feels strange to me to talk about it because some of this can sound outlandish because we're speculating about a condition that has never existed before. So we're having to guess what it might be like and use our imagination on what it's like. So it's hard to wrap our head around it. Um, but lots of people in technology know that these dangers exist. So I'm trusting them and we got to just work with this. So, you know, the things I've talked about so far sound a little crazy, but it gets even more crazy from here, kind of like science fiction. But, you know, just a comparison, imagine if we could time travel back to the 1950s or 1960s and talk with people then. So they were really excited about their new technology. You know, they were making plastics and chemicals and cars that did all these amazing new things. It was an innovative time. So what if we went back and we described to them the environmental and climate nightmare that we're facing now, where, you know, we've got the sixth mass extinction happening, our ecosystems are falling apart, We've got climate change that could cause 2 billion people in the world in the next 50 years to have to migrate or die because it's too hot. You know, we've got COVID-19 and probably more pandemics to come. Like If you went back to the 1950s and 60s and told them about this, they'd say, what? You're crazy. There's no way we can damage the whole earth. Like, nah, that won't happen. You're crazy. You watch too much science fiction. It would sound outlandish, but these things happened because people weren't looking out for the future. So that's kind of, I think, where we stand right now is like where people were in the 50s and 60s with their new technology. Now we've got ours and we have to think about the future and imagine what's possible.
So as all this plays out, there's going to be incentive for people to make AIs that are more and more general because it's more efficient than having lots of individualized AIs for single purposes. If you could just make one and it does a hundred different things, that's a more useful product and people are working on it. But as they become more versatile, they're going to be able to do more things that we didn't anticipate. So just remember back to that GPT-3, we didn't know that it was going to write computer code. There's going to be surprises. As this all plays out, these super smart computers may not align with our goals. They might not do exactly what they want. So the programming could be imperfect because these are highly complicated systems and its programmers don't fully understand how it works because these AIs are learning themselves. Um, and they could make mistakes on these very powerful um, you know, tech tools. There also could be miscommunications between us and our AI systems. There's miscommunication between people all the time. So it's hard for me to imagine that communication would always be perfect with an AI system. So it might simply misunderstand what we want and go off and do some other thing because it didn't understand us clearly. And then we also don't know if these systems are going to act in an ethical way because ethics are hard to program into a computer system. But ethics in a computer system are incredibly important if they're smarter than us and they're super powerful and have lots of capability. Um, more on that ethical issue later, uh, pretty soon. But some of this misalignment is not going to be that it's trying to... Um, you know, be mean or evil or something. It's just trying to pursue our goals, but we've stated our goals poorly, or we just haven't programmed it well enough. So you could imagine things like um, the AI does things to avoid being shut off because it wants to keep pursuing the goal that we told it, or in order to meet the goal, it steals money or acquires money or energy to grow its capabilities so that it can meet the goal. Or it lies or kills people in order to meet the goal because they're standing in the way. Um, not necessarily out of evil intention, at least in the way that we understand evil. It's just driven to meet its goal and we've programmed the goal wrong. Um, inventors, as they make these things, will try to program into it all the things that a smart AI should not do. But I don't know if programmers are going to think of every possible possibility because these systems are going to be smarter than us. So if they're super, super intelligent, the programmers have told it, you know, don't do these 50 things, but the super smart AI is going to think of another 50 things that the programmers didn't think of. So 
Um, there's just a lot of uncertainty here. A lot of people say when they contemplate the stuff, well, all right, if a computer gets super smart and it's not obeying us, like, so what? Let's just shut it off. It won't be a big, a big issue. But there's huge problems with that. That's not going to be possible. So one um, likely scenario is that AIs are operating on the Internet. So it's not just software on an individual computer sitting in a box in a room. It's out there on the Internet operating and doing things. So, you know, that, um, you know, currently researchers coming up with these artificial intelligence tools, these powerful ones, this is general agreement to have to not like connect it to the Internet. So that's why OpenAI, as it came up with that GPT throw program, they fed it copies of the internet. So they just downloaded all these web pages and books and gave it to the computer. They didn't just let the computer go online and, and prowl around. But at some point, there's going to be strong incentives to hook these things to the internet. So you know, that GPT-3 got very smart with static data, just like copies of web pages and books. But it could become even smarter if it went online and could do things and manipulate things and interact with people and interact with websites. Um, its capabilities would grow even faster. And I think at some point there's going to be programmers who know that and who are going to release it to the internet to boost its capabilities. Also, for artificial intelligence to just be useful in the world, it's going to get connected to the internet. That's where it's going to be useful. So just for example, imagine AI being used to help um, run a large international corporation that's an internet thing. If you're going to um, have it managing multiple locations, shipping from place to place, acquiring resources or parts, managing money between various locations, that's an internet thing. And um, if a company, just for that one example, using it to manage that situation, well, then maybe it goes on the internet and sort of escapes, makes copies of it, um, and is just out there in the ether um, prowling around. So if it starts to have goals of its own or a mind of it its own, it could impact the many things in our lives that are internet-based. And internet has revolutionized our lives and will going forward. There will be more and more and more things that are connected to the internet. So most of our economic activity like banking and our money management and our shopping and paychecks, um, our communication systems like our email and social media and news and websites and you know even our phones, our electric grid, our self-driving vehicles like all connected to the internet and there will be more and more things connected to the internet. So with a super smart artificial intelligence that's on the internet even if it doesn't have a physical body, there's a lot that it can do to impact our lives. But then, 
AIs may be combined with robotics because artificial intelligence will control those robots better, more fluidly, make them more capable. Um, and AIs might even be designing and manufacturing those robots to make them even better. So there may be, over time, robots that are more general in their capabilities to do a lot of things that humans currently do. I mean, they're already being used in manufacturing, um, but you might also see robot construction workers, janitors, firefighters, soldiers, etc. But you can imagine a future where AIs are running robots, and then those robots are manufacturing other robots, and you could have like whole fleets and armies of robots controlled by artificial intelligence. And, you know, it's not like they're going to just go, like, shoot everybody up and kill everybody. It's not like the Terminator kind of scenario. But you could lose control. You could have a lot of things in our physical environment that are not under our control anymore because the AI is controlling them. And then also, you know, in a more social way, you could find situations where super smart AI could hire people and get people to do what it wants done. So if an AI is like um, making money online or stealing money online and then using that to pay people to do what it wants, that's another way that the AI can have a physical influence out in the world. And then Beyond all this, you might, once we have multiple AIs for multiple purposes, these things will communicate and collaborate with each other in ways that we just can't anticipate. So even if the programmers design it really well, that particular AI for that particular purpose, they're not likely to be able to foresee all the complexity of like 20 or 50 or 100 of these AI systems around the world that are then interacting with each other. We just don't know how that plays out. So I think that for some people, it sounds outlandish to consider that we're going to have AIs with a mind of their own that just go do their own thing and they stop following what we want. Because after all, these are our tools that we made, so they'll just do what we want. But I want to just look at some other ways in which that deviation might occur between our goals and the computer's goals. So some people, as they anticipate a computer having human-level intelligence, or even superhuman, they expect that it'll be like a human. Um, and this might be especially kind of deceptive because they might be talking like humans um, because they'll be interacting with us using speech and that speech might be very fluid they might um, they might be very human-like in the way they act but they're not going to be like humans it'll be kind of like an alien um, sort of acting human so Consider an entity more intelligent than us, it might just see the world differently than we do. And that might be too big of a gap for us to understand each other. So just as a comparison, compare us human beings with a chimpanzee. Right? A chimpanzee is a very smart creature, 
But there's things that it's just not going to understand that there's no way we can explain to it. Like try to explain economics to a chimpanzee. They're just not going to get it. Um, and so there's going to be ways in which that, that super intelligent AI is just going to have a mindset that we're just not going to get because um, we're just not smart enough to understand where they're coming from. And then also us and this super, uh, super intelligent AI might have different ideas about what like good ethical behavior is. So I've heard a lot of computer science folks get upset about news articles in the mainstream media where they'll include a picture of an evil robot with it when talking about artificial intelligence. And they say, like, that's not realistic. That's not how it's going to play out. And I agree with that. I have no reason to assume that AI will naturally be evil. But then there's also no reason to assume that it will be good or have empathy or understand our ethical point of view because it won't exactly hit a human-like state. It'll be something different. Um, it may not be conscious, or maybe it will, but it's not going to be human. So our intellect, um, just straight intellectual ability, maybe you can program that into computers because it's based on logic, and logic is like a set of rules. But our emotions and empathy are way more fuzzy. I don't see a way to program that. That's much harder. And even if you could, then there's decisions on how much empathy to program into it. So if you programmed it with lots of empathy, it might just kind of sit there and do nothing because it doesn't want to risk hurting somebody's feelings. Or, you know, on the other end of it, you can imagine a company CEO telling the programmers of it, like, fuck the empathy. I need it to be ruthless and go make money. Like, we don't want the empathy. Make it powerful. You know, you've got all these different, um, it, you know, it's a spectrum, and, and we don't know where to fall on that. Um, and humans are all different. Like, each one of us has a different ethical structure and a different idea of what morality is. So which human would we model it after? Like, would we model it after me or you or the guy down the street? Or like, which human are we picking as the ideal ethical human? And I'm not sure if there is an ideal ethical human because we're all filled with contradictions and there's no one that's purely ethical. Part of this difficulty with programming ethics into a machine, to me, comes even from the field of philosophy, where there's a whole subsection of philosophy about ethics. People in this field, like, the debates still rage on about what's the best ethics. Like, this isn't a settled issue. It's not like there's one single truth that we've uncovered on what's the best ethics. Um, and, and that's even maybe the, the people who have studied ethics for their whole life, like, don't have it all settled. 
you know, everyday humans are a little more challenged. Um, so it's hard to believe that a computer would be more ethical than us. And I think if it's going to have powerful capabilities beyond what humans have, it makes that ethical issue even more important because they could do an incredible amount of damage if they don't have a sense of ethics. But I don't, I don't see really um, what's the ideal ethics even like that you would program into it, even if that was possible. And like, who's going to be in charge of programming the ethics? Like the computer scientists sitting at their desk making this machine is going to be equipped to design ethics into it? Like, should we trust those deep fake inventors we saw earlier? where they made the you know videos of their new creation using Obama and Trump in misinformation that had no clue that they were destroying truth and democracy? Like, should we put them in charge of designing the ethics for our powerful AI? I think we're putting a little too much trust in our computer programmers to get this right. And you know, I don't anticipate that they're going to make it like humans because we don't even understand how our own brain works. Like, you know, knowledge is growing, but there is a huge amount of mystery about the human brain and how we tick. But say, for instance, you didn't have to program it in. Maybe we could just have really smart AI just observe humans and draw patterns and pair, you know, basically observe our behavior to get a sense of ethics. But we're flawed creatures. I mean, you know, as ethical as we might think we are, as a whole, humans have risked our planet and our future by screwing up the climate and destroying nature and doing bad things to each other. Like, the human race, we have plenty of unethical people among us that, you know, I don't see why a computer would not be just as unethical. So what might it be like as we share the Earth with this newly created entity that's more intelligent than us? Um, you know, humans have been in charge of the earth for the last 10,000 years because we're the most intelligent. Um, to try to see what this relationship with supercomputers might be like, let's consider our own relationship now with other animals on the planet that are less intelligent than us those super intelligent computers might treat us the same way that we treat our animals. So, like maybe the luckiest outcome here is if the AI treats us like pets. You know, we might be kind of irrelevant. Um, you know, the AIs are running the economy and the world and we've taken over all our jobs and doing everything for us. And we really just kind of don't matter that much. Um, you know, maybe we'll be treated well, maybe we'll be fed, um, but 
I don't know. It's it's harder for me to um, know that that outcome will happen, though, because I don't know why the computers would care about us that much. I mean, we sort of care about our pets because we like to cuddle with our cat or our dog because they're all fuzzy and we have a limbic system and, you know, we get the cuddly oxytocin hormones going when we um, have that kind of bonding with an animal. But I'm not sure that a computer made of silicon chips or whatever it's made of is going to have that kind of um, visceral, you know, empathy for us. But we'll see. Maybe we'll just be pets. Um, it seems a little more likely that we might be slaves in the way that our farm animals and working animals are. Um, I don't think they would eat us like we eat our animals, but you know, the super intelligent computers that are running the show, they might still need us to do physical work that it can't do. Um, and it might pay us even, but it would be sort of an indentured servitude where we're doing what the computers tell us to do because we're not in charge anymore. Um, and it's possible that it's a bleak existence because the AI running the show might not care much about our comfort or happiness. It just wants the work done. Um, it's possible, too, that it could really distort society and, you know, maybe pay some people to manage the rest of us in the form of like a military police state or something like that, where it's just this oppressive society that's serving the whims of the AI. Um, and, you know, what feels to me a little most likely, but again, nobody knows, um, but this super intelligent AI might treat us like we treat animals in nature, where we just ignore them. Um, they just happen to be in the way, and okay, they might just go extinct, but it's not like we tried to make them go extinct, it just, we were busy doing a lot of things, and we didn't really pay attention to them. So, you know, as a comparison, I think back to a while back, I was visiting my parents, and um, I, I mowed their lawn for them. It's a big chunk of, of lawn, and it's a riding lawnmower that I used. They're kind of a rural place, has lots of toads all over the uh, property. There's just toads jumping around all over the place. And as I mowed the lawn, I know I killed a bunch of toads. Now, it would have been impossible, like, for me to get off the mower and go and, like, sweep the toads out of my way to make sure I don't hit any toads, but I never would have got the lawn mowed, and I had to get a mowed. So I killed some toads, and I'm a nature lover. Like, I'm not trying to hurt toads, but they were just secondary to my goal of getting the lawn mowed. And, you know, in a similar kind of way, like we might just be secondary to whatever goals this AI develops because it's a different sort of consciousness and intelligence than us and we can't really understand it and we're irrelevant. So, um, so I don't know, who knows which of those scenarios happens, if any, but they all strike me as possibilities. This other kind of scenario I've settled upon as I think about the future, potential misalignment between us and the AI, um, 
like what if things just stop working and we don't know why? So I think over the coming years, we might get very excited about artificial intelligence and what it can do for us because it can handle complexity and we have a complex world. And it might do things faster and more efficiently, more profitably. And so we might give control to AI for many things in our lives, like our communication systems, our financial systems, transportation, electricity grid, other infrastructure, might all be run by artificial intelligence. And it might get really intertwined into our economy and our way of life and the way that fossil fuels have, where, you know, we've been using it for so long that it's very hard to get off it um, or the Internet um, totally intertwined in our life. Like, just for imagine if we shut down the Internet for a day, if we just said, like, oh, gee, the Internet isn't working right. we got to shut it down and fix it so y'all don't have Internet for a day. Like, it would be a total shit show. Like, businesses would close for the day. Like, people couldn't get anything done. They couldn't communicate with each other. They couldn't navigate. They couldn't, like, do anything. Like, billions of dollars would be lost. It would be a hit to our economy to shut down the Internet for the day because it's so intertwined in our lives. So when artificial intelligence becomes so embedded into our life, it might be hard to simply shut it off. So we could also like have these things running the show, but nobody knows quite exactly what the ARs or AIs are doing because they're smarter than us. So even the people creating these systems may not understand exactly how they work, but they're working and they're making money, so just let them have at it. But we could just have more and more complexity happening. So then, you know, at some point you've got vehicles crashing, power outages, money gets lost, um, you know, the food doesn't get delivered. Like, things could start going wrong, but we don't know why they're going wrong, because it's all run by the AI. Um, and also, you know, over time, people may forget how to do things manually, because we've let the AIs run them for so long that nobody knows how to run a train system within a, without an AI, or, you know, the systems for the electricity grid or the internet or whatever, like it's been run by AI for so long, like us humans, we don't even know how it works anymore. So, you know, in the way that, like, imagine a future where it's all driverless cars and everybody forgets how to drive. But then that system goes kaput because the AI has some different goal than we do. And it's we're not understanding how it works anymore. So at that point, we might see things going wrong and know that continuing forward down this path is risky because things might go even more wrong. But it might be hard to step back because then we'd be stepping back into a time that's less technological. A bunch of people lose money and it's a lot of work to undo all this. So that's a possible um, scenario that kind of worries me is just this sort of boggling complexity of it all. And if that happened, you know, that in itself could become a catastrophic risk by crashing our economy or our political systems 
or it could just simply be a huge pain in the ass and it's an enormous distraction from managing the other catastrophic risk that we have. So we stop managing our climate or our pandemic preparedness or whatever else because things are melting around, melting down around us and it's all getting hard to manage. So those are some possible scenarios I don't know what's going to come true. You don't know what's going to come true. Um, you might have your own possible scenarios you can think of, but um, we got to start thinking this stuff through. Let's step it back to right now, right here, at this moment, with the choices we have in front of us, and what do we do about this? Just think, who is actually in charge here? Like, are we in charge of our future? Are we actively choosing this path, or are we just let it, letting it happen? As a human race, what would it look like to responsibly manage our behavior and protect our future? Who said we had to go this fast? Do we really need to advance this quickly? This whole thing with artificial intelligence, do we have to do it right now? What if we just waited for a while until we have our shit together and we figure out the safety and figure out the policy and the governance and the systems to do this stuff in a responsible way? Do we have to do it right now, this moment? Um, these are all legitimate questions. As we figure out all this stuff and figure out how to do our technology in a good way, there's some challenges in front of us within our culture that we're going to have to manage. Part of all this is that some of the effects of this technology are years in the future. And people in general are not good at planning ahead. So, you know, we're always faced with like right now problems. Like you look in the news and there's a whole bunch of emergencies happening and that's always the case of it, always, you know, how it is. Um, and so in the middle of our right now problems, it can be tricky to look out two, three, four decades ahead and imagine what it's going to be like and avoid the challenges of the future. But what if back in, say, the 1980s, people started to take climate change seriously when it first emerged that people realized that was a possibility? Like, we'd have a completely different world, far safer and healthier than what we're about to face if people had thought ahead. Or what if people thought ahead about our pandemic risk? Like, even just 10 years ago, we might have been able to avoid COVID-19 or at least be ready for it and prepared to manage it instead of the shit show that we've had around the world with this. Um, because people did not listen to the scientists that were warning us about it. So we collectively just have to think about our future and manage it better. Um, and really, change is moving faster than our understanding of it. So these risks will come quickly faster than we anticipate um, and some of them some of them could just blow up at any moment so we really got to get on this another problem in the public conversation around this is that just some of it sounds crazy um, really it sounds like we're watching too many science 
fiction movies. Um, but, you know, we have to help everyone understand that these are credible threats and risks. Um, and it's not just a bunch of scary imagining things. It's by credible people in the field who are warning us of these risks. Another thing in our culture is that people idolize technological progress like it's a religion. You know, people are just fascinated by this stuff and like have to have the new gadgets coming out and it's all cool and it's exciting. And, um, you know, our, our tech leaders are kind of put on a pedestal and a lot of people just don't want to slow progress because they think this progress is cool. Um, so we're going to have to push back against that. Um, in order to have people also understand the risks of, at the same time. And I think in many cases, we do need to move slower than we have been and put safety in place. Another challenge in dealing with all this is that it's highly technical. Um, most people don't understand how it works. So including politicians who are in charge of government regulation of this stuff, or just normal citizens like us, even the people involved in creating artificial intelligence don't always understand how it works. So it's very technical and complicated, and um, it'll take some work to do this conversation in public in a way that everybody can understand. But we got to do that. We also need to use society's expertise and our smart people in new ways. So, you know, among computer scientists or other kind of scientists, there are so many employed in tech companies that are like pushing the innovation forward. And we don't have enough of them working on, say, governance and policy and safety mechanisms. So it's almost like if we compare this to an automobile, we as a society are like pushing the gas pedal full throttle. We need more people at the steering wheel and applying the brakes so that we can stay safe as we drive into the future. So my intention here as I offer all this stuff is not to like make you depressed and scared and go away frustrated. You know, our goal here is to fix things. And so I've got some ideas I want to share with you, some possibilities that we should consider that might help us um, have more safety in all this stuff. So one, I admit people will see as naive and outlandish, but I think it's worth considering. If I could wave my mag magic wand, I would have a moratorium on artificial intelligence research, at least for a couple years. Just like, hey, programmers, take your hands off the keyboard for a couple years. Just stop what you're doing. Let's all have a conversation about safety and policy and how do we put systems in place to do this stuff safely. It's so incredibly powerful that we have to get this stuff right and we're just like pushing forward so fast before we've thought it all through and we're about to have dangerous things happen. So let's just pause for a little bit till we figure this out. I'm not claiming that humanity should never invent these technologies 
but we got to do it right. Let's just slow down and do it right. Um, also, as we manage this stuff, I want to see much stronger regulatory systems that place rules and place boundaries on what people can do so it doesn't just spin off into a bunch of dangerous directions. But I want to not have just a bunch of cumbersome bureaucracy in the way that um, some of the worst bureaucracy of our governments has been. Like we need agile regulatory systems that are flexible, that can keep up with the fast pace of technology. And, you know, this whole realm we're talking about, it's different than a lot of other parts of government because it's just brand new and it's different. And so this is all really an opportunity for us to experiment with our governance and how governments operate and come up with some new kinds of uh, systems that work differently and are well suited to these threats. So one possibility that came to me is I got to thinking, what if the United States had a cabinet level department of existential risk? or a department of catastrophic risk, or whatever you want to name it, um, and a similar you know, congressional committee on existential risk that focuses on this stuff. Um, and obviously, other governments around the world, we would want to have a similar thing. But doing something like that would help us build a political and policy infrastructure around these issues. It's a lot of this stuff is still very new, and so we don't have robust um, governance systems yet in the way that we do for like education or health or commerce or other areas of government. And so if we had a department of existential risk, it could handle things like artificial intelligence and technology, but even some of the other risks that we face that cut across policy issue areas. And really, um, departments and legislative committees and whatever focused on this would be a way of considering the future. Like in our important policy debates, let's give future generations a seat at the table so that they are represented and instead of all this short term just like running from emergency to emergency we've got a planful process for considering what's going to happen potentially in future decades and manage that risk all this kind of stuff with regulation um, obviously should happen internationally as well because like we've said, these are worldwide issues and it's silly to rely on just country by country trying to regulate this stuff. And that would happen within the United Nations that is well-funded, well-staffed, and has the authority to tackle the big important issues. And so really we need to revamp the UN and have it work in a, a more robust way. What I'd like to see happen very short term is have legislation in the U.S. and many other countries that puts certain things off limits, at least for now, um, because it's going to take several years to build good regulatory systems to manage this stuff ongoing. 
So at least short term, I want to make it illegal to do certain bad things. So a company cannot release to the public something that, say, is capable of dominating the stock market or can be used for hacking or identity theft or like deep fakes and other sorts of deception or, you know, weapons that are autonomous and, and self-guided. Um, you know, let's just make it illegal to release to the public things that are dangerous. And we don't know exactly how the technology is going to play out, but we can at least legislate those end results or those purposes and put those things off limits, at least for now, until we have better safety um, systems in place. And then on a parallel track, um, between countries, we need um, treaties on things like autonomous weapons that are guided by artificial intelligence, because this really could be the next arms race that could be destabilizing. And countries so far, we've had international treaties on nuclear weapons, on biological weapons, chemical weapons, landmines. And these kind of treaties have been very um, helpful in managing, managing these risks. So we need another one for autonomous weapons and artificial intelligence in a military context. So then, after putting some hard limits on some of those um, dangerous outcomes, we then can set our minds and in, in our efforts toward um, building regulatory systems that can manage this stuff going forward. Um, we can't fully predict and legislate everything beforehand. And legislative processes are slow and cumbersome. Um, but legislation could be important in setting the structure for these regulatory systems. And then going forward, regulators are a little more flexible in how they handle things and can adapt to this quickly moving technological advancement. And so that flexibility can help us manage situations where technology is both good and bad. So there might be an artificial general intelligence that will help us do important scientific research or innovate um, new products that we need, but also can be used by bad people for harm. And it's not as binary as like, we should release it or we should not. It's like we need a system in place for keeping it safe so that maybe it's programmed to not allow those bad outcomes or that we need um, structures for you know licensing and laws or training or whatever or ways to keep it out of the hands of bad people who do bad things with it so um, you know this regulatory structure in some cases, it needs the authority to say to a company or inventor, like, no, you can't do that. That's too dangerous. We won't allow it. Or maybe it's, well, okay, maybe, but let's slow down and let's study this first before we give it to the public. Or in some cases, it's like, yeah, pretty good, but let's put some safety precautions in place before you release it. 
Um, and then in some cases, we'll find with technology that's already being run and already in the world that it starts to cause problems or it's causing damages that we didn't realize. And we have to shut it down. And so we need a regulatory structure that has the authority to shut it down or slow it down or pause it or whatever once we realize problems are happening, rather than waiting years for our slow legislative systems to catch up with it. And then part of this regulatory process is to have some early review or some conversations with people inventing technology so that we don't have people spending many years and millions of dollars inventing something and then they get told that it won't be approved and they can't sell it. That's an unfortunate waste of time and money, and we don't want to see that sort of thing. So there needs to be that sort of fluidity where people can get an early answer to, to what they're hoping to do. These regulatory systems also need to be interdisciplinary. So if we're going to manage, uh, say, artificial intelligence, don't only employ computer scientists to monitor this stuff also use psychologists and political scientists and economists and sociologists and maybe even historians or other kinds of scientists. Like, you need a lot of different viewpoints to consider what the impact on society will be of new technology. So we're going to need to incorporate lots of different types of expertise in this. And we need to give it really strong funding and staffing because some of this will be labor-intensive to think this stuff through or to look over some new product and determine what it's going to do, especially because this all is very complex stuff we're inventing. Um, one serious benefit of having strong staffing and strong funding is that people can get decisions on their applications quicker instead of having backlogs that happen when an agency is understaffed. We don't want that kind of thing. We actually do want to allow innovation to occur. And so let's let people get an answer quickly. That requires funding. These regulatory um, boards or agencies should have regular citizens involved. People who are non-scientists, non-technical experts. Like, I want to see regular people in the mix because we're all affected by this kind of stuff. And so um, I don't want to see just these experts off in a room doing their thing. It really needs to be accountable to all of us. And then, you know, this other part of the solution is a little different than, say, um, governance or policy although it needs to be connected with that, we need to make settings where imagination occurs and good conversations occur between people of multiple perspectives. So what's tricky about this realm is that it's all moving quickly and it's hard to predict what the future looks like. So it requires us using our imagination and you know, science fiction might be some of the most helpful thing these days. If it's at least um, bounded in reality and some connection with, you know, the actual technology instead of just make-believe. But 
like we need ways for people to imagine what these futures might look like um, so that we can come up with better regulations and plans and systems. We can't wait until this all becomes crystal clear before we make these safety systems. So because we don't know how it's going to play out, it's always going to be kind of fuzzy. And we can't wait until, oh, now we see how the technology is shaping up and then make the regulation. Because at that point, it's going to be too late. This is all moving way too quickly. So we have to just do the best we can with what we know right now and then keep adjusting it as we go along. So I'm about to wrap this up. You've been wonderfully generous with your time and I appreciate you um, sticking around and listening to me as uh, I offer these ideas. I do want to leave you with just a few key concepts to hang on to and remember going forward. One is that once things are invented, we can't uninvent them. So we should be very careful at that moment of invention in putting things into the world. Another is that technology spreads. So once it's created, it's hard to control who gets it and who uses it and how they use it. Also, on the technological front, we're moving faster than we can manage responsibly. And finally, Technology can be invented anywhere and affects everywhere. So international tools would really help us manage this. All right, that's what I got for you for today. Thank you so much for joining us. Let's talk soon. And in the meantime, let's just be the best people we can be. Take care. Thanks for listening, but you're not done yet. We can't change the world if we keep the joy of saving the human race to ourselves. Help me spread the word and help this movement grow. Please subscribe to the show, both the podcast and the YouTube channel. Leave ratings or reviews, which encourages others to listen. Share this show with others on your social media. Even better, just tell a friend about it and have a good conversation about the state of the world. These things really make a difference. I hope you can help the show grow and reach a larger audience. I'm grateful for your help. Thank you. And please stay in touch with me. I love to get feedback, suggestions, and questions. Go to the website at joyofsavingthehumanrace.com. At the website, you'll learn more about the show, and you can sign up to get occasional email updates. Thanks to Moby for the show's theme music, and thanks to you for being here. All right, we're done for today. Be well. I'll talk to you soon.